We start this episode with a short bio of our nomination for America's Greatest Badass. Araminta Minty Ross was born around 1822 in Dorchester County, Maryland. Her mother was owned by a woman named Mary Brodus. Three of her sisters were sold to distant plantations, separating her family when Minty was still a girl. A slave trader from Georgia approached her mother's masters about buying her youngest brother. This time, her mother was able to successfully resist the sale of Minty's brother. For Minty, physical abuse was a way of life throughout her childhood. Once, she was lashed five times before breakfast. She would bear the scars of her childhood whippings for the rest of her life. Minty was often loaned out to neighboring families who mistreated her. When she was a teenager, she encountered an overseer who had caught a slave off his plantation without permission. When the overseer ordered Minty to help restrain the slave, she refused, showing that she was already a woman of strong character, instilled in her by the mother who stood up to her wicked master and prevented her son from being sold to Georgia. The overseer threw a metal weight at Minty, striking her in the head and causing closed head injuries. Although Minty had been promised her freedom, her masters reneged on this promise. Finally, Minty had enough. In 1849, while in her late twenties, she fled her life of slavery and made her way to Pennsylvania, a free state. Yet Minty wasn't satisfied. Her family was still enslaved in the South, so she made connections with the Underground Railroad, a secret network of those helping slaves to reach freedom, and returned to the South to get them. By now, she was married and using her married name of Harriet Tubman. In all, Harriet Tubman made perhaps 19 return trips to the South as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. It's estimated she freed over 300 slaves. What was it like for her to return so many times to the land that held her as human chattel her entire childhood and where she had been abused over and over again so violently? A number of masters in the South knew who was leading their slaves away, and every slave represented a substantial financial asset to the slave owners. They wanted to capture Harriet, and they wanted it bad. She knew that she faced torture and ultimately a violent death if she were caught, but she kept returning in order to free those she knew were wrongfully enslaved. Ever since the white overseer threw the metal weight at her head when she was a teenager, Harriet had suffered from seizures and episodes of narcolepsy. On top of the already extreme danger of being a conductor in the Underground Railroad, this had to have posed even more danger for her when she was in the South. Still, she returned again and again. When the Fugitive Slave Law was passed, requiring the return of slaves to the South even after they had escaped to freedom in the North, Harriet worked with good-hearted Northerners and conducted slaves all the way to Canada. So although she'd found freedom, and even after she'd led her family to freedom, Harriet Tubman placed herself in harm's way over and over again to free slaves. She died at about the age of 93 at her home in Auburn, New York, surrounded by her husband, family, and friends. Welcome to Nearest Fiddle, episode 19, The Other Side of History. We've already discussed the prime driver of history over and over again in this podcast. You'll see it repeatedly in just about any history book you pick up. That is, 
one group fearing an outgroup and then entering into some kind of conflict with them. It's such a huge percentage of what historians write about that it would be boring except for the endless variations we humans seem to be able to concoct on this one theme. These endless variations play out every day in all corners of the world, from small office politics to world wars. At one point, I think I said the repetition of this prime driver constitutes 99% of human history. Well, that's both true and not true. It represents 99% of history you'll read in history books. But there's another driver of history that historians rarely talk about, and that also doesn't get the attention it deserves in this podcast. Still, it deserves at least one episode here, as it's one of those things you just can't understand history without. I'm talking about the cooperation that occurs between groups. Yes, it's true that we humans give in to our reactive aggression impulse that has existed since before Adam and Eve came along. But this is an episode about the other side of our nature, the side that doesn't see others as frightening or bad, the side that reaches out to trade with them, help, and forge ties with those who speak different languages, look different from us, or come from different social strata. I read a story once. I wish I could remember where I saw it. It was a while ago, so I'm afraid I don't know whom to attribute it to. But the essentials of the story went something like this. The author related that when he was in high school, he was walking down the street and he saw a classmate of his. He didn't know the guy well, but he seemed like a nice guy. So he started a conversation with him and ultimately invited him to his house, where the two spent the afternoon talking and getting to know each other a little. It didn't sound like an exceptional encounter, but the author got to know his classmate a little better and made a new friend. The two were never close friends, but they got together a few times between this first encounter and the end of high school. The friendship was not high on the author's ladder of friendships, but we all have people in our outer circle whom we like and whose company we enjoy. This seemed to be one of those outlying friendships. But the author went on to say that the friend came up to him at high school graduation to thank him. The author asked what he was being thanked for. His friend said that on that first day when the author had started a conversation with him, he had been on his way to jump off a bridge and commit suicide. The friend had been suffering through a severe personal crisis at the time and decided to end his life. When the author had struck up a conversation and spent the afternoon with him, he decided life was worth living after all. I don't know what happened after that. Perhaps the friend grew up and fell in love. Perhaps he married and had a child or two. Perhaps they are happy, loved children in this world that would never have existed if the article's author hadn't been too busy or self-absorbed to say hi to his classmate. Perhaps these children will grow up to have children of their own, and their children will have children of their own, etc., etc. The point, of course, is that small acts of kindness can often have large consequences. Historians don't write about this much, except perhaps in Chicken Soup for the Soul books, but we were introduced in episode 16 to the better angels driver of history. It's our inclination to be kind and desire to be sociable that's the glue that binds so much social interaction and drives history forward in positive directions. There's another driver, let's call it the trade and commerce driver, that's somewhat related to the better angels driver. It's related in that it takes people who might have been out-groups and makes them see each other as in-groups. I had a friend, 
a dyed-in-the-wool fox-watching Republican during the Iraq War era, who saw terrible news stories about Islamists on a nightly basis, who had become good friends with an Islamic businessman with whom he regularly engaged in business. Trait had allowed my friends to realize that Islamic people were not the outgroup, a connection that not all fox watchers made at the time. Along these lines, in 1298, a well-known Venetian merchant found himself captaining a Venetian galley against the Italian city-state of Genoa. He may have been a great merchant, but he soon found himself a captured galley captain. The merchant spent a few years in prison in Genoa. While in prison, he met a romance writer, Rusticello de Pisa. Tradition has it that the merchant dictated an account of his previous travels to Rusticello. After they were both ransomed and released, Rucicello published the most famous travelogue in history, The Travels of Marco Polo. There are some that think that Marco Polo did not make it all the way to China, but I think most agree that he did. The book recounted how Marco set out overland for China in 1271 with his father and uncle. They traveled over the Silk Roads. These were a series of trade routes that had existed since perhaps the time of Christ and traversed between numerous places in Asia and Western Europe. There is not one road known as the Silk Road. Rather, trade took place from multiple locations along various routes. One trader would typically not go from Western Europe to China. A bolt of silk might pass through many traders before it reached Rome. Still, the routes were there, and a trader could use them to travel from Italy to China if desired. And this is what the Polos desired. Marco's father and uncle had traveled along the Silk Roads to China once before. While there, Kublai Khan, the emperor of China at the time, asked them if they would bring back some oil from the lamp at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. This the Polos carried with them on their second trip to China. As they traveled overland rather than by ship, their trip to China took them four years. Although this must have been a long, grueling trek, Marco's recounting shows that he found all the cultures he encountered along the way to be fascinating. Their trip took them through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Central Asia, and eventually to China. Most of their journey throughout the Middle East passed through Muslim lands, but they also crossed territory populated by Nestorian Christians, Buddhists, Manichaeans, and Zoroastrians. Marco's travel log detailing these travels makes clear his fascination with all these people and one is left with a sense of the fondness he had for these peoples. Sometime in 1275, the Polos reached Shangdu, the summer capital of China, and delivered the oil to Kublai Khan. Marco, his father, and his uncle stayed in China for the next 16 or 17 years. It's difficult to tell from the writings, but many think he was part of the court of the Great Khan. He traveled extensively throughout China during this time, going on missions and serving in various administrative capacities. Sometime around 1292, the Polos left China to return to Italy, where Marco would eventually be hired to captain a ship in a battle between the Venetians and Genoese, where he was captured, imprisoned, and where he met Aristocello, who would help him write his famous book. When Marco's book was ultimately published, it was a huge hit and read throughout Europe. Marco was the most famous trade emissary, but he was only one of millions of traders who have journeyed to foreign lands over the millennia. They were people with a love of adventure, sure, but more important for our story here, they were people without the instinct for high reactive aggression shared by most of their contemporaries. 
Marco would go into land populated by Nestorian Christians and be fascinated and captivated by their culture and hospitality. The vast majority of his Venetian contemporaries would have found the idea of being surrounded by a bunch of Nestorians horrifying. The Nestorians didn't accept the doctrine of the Trinity to the Roman Catholics' liking, so Roman Catholics would repress them and even kill Nestorians when they got the chance. As far as we can tell, however, they weren't an outgroup to Marco. They were just another interesting culture to enjoy and get to know along the way. This brings up a crucial point to take into account when we analyze history. History isn't monolithic. We can say that people have a high degree of reactive regression that causes them to act hostilely to those they view as being outgroups. This reactive hostility is the prime driver of history. What we mean by this is that a majority of people fit into this category, and this dynamic, more than any other, is the cause of historical events. It's not the only historical driver, however. Historically, there have existed people who don't see people with other cultures and beliefs as dangerous outgroups. They see them as interesting and inviting. This interest in foreign and different cultures has led to innumerable traders over the course of history who have knitted cultures from Ireland to China together with bonds of trade and commerce. Less is written about trade than the wars we humans are so perpetually fond of. But the impact of trade on world history has always been huge and has become incredibly important during the last hundred years. If I were to write a history of the Catholic Church, I'm afraid it wouldn't come off too well. From the Crusades to the Inquisition to the Borgia Popes having orgies in the Vatican to the modern-day priest pedophilia scandal and the Church's shameful response to it, there's a lot to suggest that Catholicism is a religion that has historically been run by men who were often corrupt, and some with even a pathological self-righteous satisfaction in killing and torturing those who didn't believe like them, or to treat thousands of children who have been violated in the worst way by Catholic priests as rival litigants and not as children whose lives have been changed forever by the perversions of the Church's priests. Yet under my history-isn't-monolithic theory, today let's talk about the other side of the Catholic Church. Francesco di Pietro Prenadone was born in the Duchy of Spoleto in Italy in 1181 or 82 AD. He grew up to found the Franciscan Order and would be canonized in 1228 as St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis truly had a heart for the poor. He lived a life of poverty in imitation of Jesus. The Franciscan Order he founded provided most of the mendicant friars we think of in the Middle Ages. These traveling monks traveled to villages who probably didn't see a whole lot of priests. They, like St. Francis, had sworn themselves to a life of poverty and supported themselves by working and begging for food. It was these friars who preached among the poorest of the denizens of the Middle Ages and assisted the sick and dying. They therefore filled a crucial role during the medieval period, where there was little social support for the poor. The Franciscans were not the only Catholic order to help the poor in the Middle Ages. No government that I know of provided any significant social safety net for the poor at this time. Rather, it was the role of the Catholic Church through the Franciscans, other orders, and parachurch organizations known as confraternities. Beginning as early as the 4th century, the Church founded orphanages and founding hospitals. This means that from the 4th century, until governments began to provide for their citizens' social welfare, 
the Catholic and later Protestant churches voluntarily provided for the welfare of orphans, widows, cripples, the poor, and the disadvantaged in Western cultures. This makes sense. Evolution has made sure that we are born with many personality types, so that in any large population of people, there will be people who are temperamentally predisposed to just about any need. There are people with heads for business, farming, science, teaching, medicine, religion, and for caring for the less fortunate members of society. There always have been. In the medieval period, there wasn't much vertical social mobility. This means that a peasant's son or daughter with a head for science was likely to grow up to remain a peasant him or herself, no matter how brilliant he or she was. Perhaps the exception to this was the church. This meant that almost anyone could grow up and enter the church. If you could afford the education, you could become a priest. If not, there was probably a monastery that would take you in. It's likely underestimated how many people avoided lives of beggary or prostitution by becoming monks or nuns. At any rate, this meant, despite medieval limits on social mobility, if you felt a true calling to care for the poor and unfortunate in the Middle Ages, you could enter the Franciscan and perhaps another order and dedicate your life to serving the poor. This wasn't a phenomenon that was limited to Western countries. There were similar structures set up for caring for the poor within the Islamic empire as well. This is one episode in a podcast that covers 200,000 years of human history. It's the only episode in which we'll deal with the role of kindness in history. There seems to be an almost infinite number of stories and events that I'm not going to cover. So many medieval saints, Florence Nightingale and the development of modern nursing, Mother Teresa's work in India, and so many, many more. Not to mention the hundreds of thousands of acts of kindness that take place across the globe every day. But I'll end this episode with just one more example. The Japanese coast in the prefecture of Fukushima was hit by a massive tsunami in 2011. The tsunami inundated the Fukushima Daiichi power plant and caused a nuclear meltdown, releasing enormous amounts of radioactivity into the air. The release of radioactive waste continued for some time after the initial disaster. It was critical that engineers, pipe fitters, and others with appropriate experience go into the power plant to stop the leak. As the Tokyo Electric Power Company prepared a team to enter the power plant to make crucially needed repairs, Yetsuru Yamada swung into action. He was a 72-year-old engineer who organized a group of qualified elderly volunteers to go into the plant to stop the radiation leak. Mr. Yamada argued that it was his generation who should enter the power plant and risk radiation poisoning and cancer rather than the younger workers with children and families who were currently employed there. If it had been only Mr. Yamada, it would have been a very commendable act of bravery. But it was a whole team of elders who volunteered to enter the radiation-contaminated area. This speaks highly of the Japanese spirit and character, but again, this is just one example. There are thousands of examples across the globe that could be cited of this kind of altruistic self-sacrifice that have happened since 2011. So if you want to predict how people will act in a given situation, you need to have an understanding of the emotions that motivate them. We've talked a lot about the prime historical driver, our propensity to separate ourselves into in-groups and out-groups, and to fear and even hate those we identify as out-groups. 
there will be more historical drivers we'll talk about as we get closer to here, to where we are now. Today, however, we're discussing not a historical driver, but something that's so ubiquitous and present in such a huge number of human interactions, I can't even call it an historical driver. It would be more properly identified as the historical glue. It's the thing that binds us together and creates history, our desire to be part of a social group, be it family, church, mosque, group of friends, work group, political party, or whatever, and the large and small kindnesses that we as humans engage in every day that bind us together and make us coalesce into families and communities. What are the emotions that motivate us during most human interactions, then? If we were to examine our emotions for one day to determine what our motivations are for each interaction we have with people during the day, most of us would find that among all our myriad emotions, a strong majority of them would be binding emotions, the emotions that bind us together in community, love, friendship, fondness of others, enjoying one another's company, and so on. Look at recent interactions you've had with your coworkers. Of course, you are driven by various transactional motivations. Economic, desire to get positive recognition, perhaps a desire for promotion. But if you look closely, you'll likely see enjoyment in working with a colleague, desire to mentor a co-worker you like, or perhaps pleasure in working with someone you find enjoyable to work with. If you don't, you're probably dissatisfied with work and hoping to find a new job where you'll find more satisfaction. It's these emotions that connect us and get us to form community. The danger comes in holding on too tightly to our in-groups and vilifying those we see in out-groups. But this is an episode on how we form bonds of community. I suppose it may be ironic that most of our interpersonal transactions are motivated by positive emotions that cause us to bind with in-groups. Yet most of this podcast, as the majority of written history, is mainly concerned with the negative emotions that separate us and cause in-group-out-group conflict. But that's what led us to our current impasse, in which we failed to address climate change, and now we'll soon face a global climate crisis. So that's the thread of history we continue to follow. As far as I know, no one's ever done a serious historical study of how kindness affects the development of historical trends. I suppose if some alien species came down to study us, they may find this quite odd. This is the glue that binds human society together. Why do they never study it? The answer is, of course, that it's just too quotidian for us to study. It's just something that happens every day. We're kind of like the fish that spend all their time in water and don't know they're surrounded with it because they've never known anything else. Since we deal with this every day of our life, most of us probably don't spend much time thinking about how this is the engine that drives our families, communities, nations, and history. Why study it? The answer, of course, is that human history would be incredibly different without the human need for companionship, both large and small, and acts of self-denial, sacrifice, and kindness that mold all our worlds. Because it's such a large part of our daily lives, individual acts of kindness don't make for interesting historical writing, but they do drive the cogs that make the dynamic systems that make history work. If we didn't have the desire for community that's native to almost all of us, human history as we know it would break down. It would be like the North American cougar. I live in the Northwest and remember a news story in which a juvenile cougar was encroaching on semi-rural land in Oregon. It started killing a few pets and some livestock. 
The Animal Control Agency trapped the cougar and then killed it. The animal rights community was upset the cougar wasn't released back into the wild away from inhabited areas. Animal Control explained that cougars are solitary animals that establish mutually exclusive territories. If another cougar enters their territory, they will attack the intruding cougar. Somebody will either be killed or run off. 100% of the habitat that is suitable for cougars is currently occupied by a cougar in Oregon. Therefore, if a juvenile cougar had been released back into the wild, it would either have been killed or run out of existing cougars' territories until it ended up back in territory inhabited by people again. You pretty much have all cougar history summarized in a nutshell there. They're just not social. You could write a chapter maybe on raising cubs and perhaps one on mating. That's about it. Cougars, leopards, wolverines, and several other predators have psychologies that drive them to remain away from other members of their species and live solitary lives. Humans are born with the opposite impulse, the impulse to congregate and live social lives. That's the force that brings us together. If we tried to live in social groups, but always put our own interests before everyone else's, social order would eventually break down and the social grouping we lived in would become a mess and ultimately self-destruct. It's our inclination towards compassion that leads humans toward the innumerable acts of kindness and helpfulness that bind us together. Our dispositions are so compassionate we may not even know it most of the time, but we help others and are helped by others every day. All of this doesn't tell anything specific about human history. It tells us why human history works. It doesn't tell us where the car took us. It explains how the car's engine works. I've said before, you can't understand history unless you understand systems. To get a deep understanding of systems, get a book on general systems theory and read it. You'll find a deeply pedantic discussion of systems theory and how it works. Depending on the book, you may find lots of equations. For our purposes, however, let me remind you the basics of systems theory. Every system has numerous elements that interact to process information and regulate them. Systems also have some kind of boundary that delineates the system from elements outside the system. If the boundary is closed, the system will regulate itself and find equilibrium. If the boundary is open, the elements will have to process new information brought into the system before re-establishing a new equilibrium. Think of an ecosystem that finds itself in equilibrium. Introduce a new predator into the system, and it may take some time before the equilibrium is reached again. When it happens, perhaps some of the animals that occupied ecological niches within that system have gone extinct. Think of mammoths and the other megafauna of North America after humans arrived. These rules of systems can be applied to many different kinds of systems, business organizations, families, ecosystems, and weather, to mention a few. Countries obey the rules of systems as well. A well-run country will find a kind of equilibrium. Country and governments are examples of dynamic systems as there is information coming into and exiting the country constantly. In the form of military threats, resource surplus or depletion, changes in religious beliefs, societal mores, political leanings, etc. Systems all need something to bind them together. That's what this episode has been about. Human compassion and desire for community make up the glue that binds societies and countries together. Whether it's brave individuals like Harriet Tubman 
intrepid traders like Marco Polo reaching out to foreign cultures to bring humanity closer together, or everyday people engaging in acts of kindness. There are millions of kind and selfless acts people engage in every day that keep us together as a society. If a society were to abandon this compassion and allow selfishness to reign, the glue of compassion would no longer hold and the entire system would collapse. So no great historical developments this episode. Just one more piece in the human puzzle, but an important one, the piece that keeps us moving forward to try to become a little bit more human. Today's read is The Silk Roads, A New History of the World by Peter Frankopan. I love recommending this book because it gets us out of the Western history rut that we've been stuck in for most of this podcast. Don't get me wrong, I love Western history. It's just that there's so much more great history out there. I wish I could be recommending a great book on how human compassion and desire for community bind societies together, but I just don't know any. Perhaps I should be recommending a chicken soup for the soul book, but here's a confession. I've never read one myself. Just a couple articles here and there. How about this? I'll pick up a chicken soup book and read it if you will. Enjoy. See you next week.